Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line, we have myself, Jacob Andrewafa, Zane Alcorn, Hello. And um, we also have a new presenter today, um, Chloe. Uh, I'm not sure if she wanted to use her real full name for uh, this uh, for the program, but yeah, I introduce you to Chloe, who's going to be one of our other guests on the program today. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah so we... Um, for the program today, um, we're going to be playing a combination. This is going to be a bit of an anti-racism kind of special, um, especially focusing on the fact that the COVID-19 crisis um, in Victoria, as it has been, has led to, you know, uh, some quite a fairly kind of racist response um, from the Victorian government, especially on the question of the lockdown of public housing tenants in the Flemington Towers. And then, you know, prior to that, there was also the scapegoating of migrants by the Herald Sun. And then, of course, there's the ongoing issue of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the Stop Black Deaths in Custody. Um, What was quite expiring was there were actually a number of protests over the weekend um, uh, in in support of Black Lives Matter, um, organised by the Indigenous community and anti-racist activists around across Australia, um, except for Victoria, which we will kind of get a bit into um, talking about some of the latest developments on on that front. Um, But I guess I would like to start by saying, um, by acknowledging that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present, um, and that this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land, and that FreeCR and Green Left Radio uh, supports uh, the continued fight um, for Aboriginal sovereignty and land rights and justice. Okay. Good. Um, now, I guess I'll, I'll, the first kind of story um, I kind of want to talk about is, I guess, um, the implications, I guess, of what has been just been recently announced, which is as of Thursday... Um, which is today, which is when we record this program, although we're going to air on Friday morning. Um, Victoria, as a result of the kind of outbreak of um, COVID-19 cases, um, in fact, we're getting up to almost 150 to 200 a day, and there's quite high rates of community transmission. Um, Victoria has had to go back into a six... No, well, not Victoria, actually. I keep getting confused about this. Melbourne, Greater Metropolitan Melbourne, has had to go into a six-week lockdown, um, going back to stage three kind of restrictions. Um, And, of course, um, yeah, 
it's 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 been considered a necessary step by the government because the COVID-19 cases have been out of control. And I think one of the things I, I like to sort of comment about it is, I mean, watching the sort of Daniel Andrews sort of press conference um, on Wednesday or Tuesday, it was sort of interesting that um, there's the, the kind of politicians are sort of um, being sort of quick to sort of blame, you know, um, people's activity, individual activities uh, for the spread when actually it's been quite clear that the evidence is pointing to the clear mishandling of the hotel quarantine guards, um, security guards, which were used to quarantine um, the returned travellers has been the main source of the transmission of COVID-19 in Victoria, in Melbourne. And I think it's, I think it's also a bit problematic for the government to sort of attack ordinary people uh, for apparently flaunting social distancing rules when the problem was, look, even looking at the recent Scott Morrison presser, it's quite clear that the government was wanting to go back to a return to business as normal. And in fact, one of the funny things I, just from Scott Morrison's sort of um, response to this, um, he was sort of asked about his position on border closures and Scott Morrison has sort of maintained a position early on that he thought that the border closures were completely unnecessary. They need to be opened. And when responding to that question on um, the question of Melbourne and Victoria, he, ba- um, he basically said, well, no, I, I haven't changed my position on border closures. Um, Victoria is just self-isolating, um, which I just think is a kind of telling because the Scott Morrison government is has been wanting to push this kind of return to business as usual. And then when you look at the fact that um, it won't, it's actually possible that this outbreak that's happening in Melbourne right now could spread to the other states. In fact, there was one recent example where a a plane um, by Jetstar with many um, people um, from Melbourne to Sydney was not even properly checked um, they did even properly check the passengers for their um, for COVID or or even quarantined. They just let them go out <laughs> into the into the into the community with no um, assessment whatsoever. And it's like you know if, if things like that keep happening, like mom, big um, screw ups like that, I think it's probably got to be only a matter of time between between some kind of second outbreak of COVID nineteen happens in New South Wales. And in fact, Canberra has reconsidered. Um, easing its restrictions, which it was due to do this Friday as a result of uh, five new cases of COVID-19 or three cases, um, three new cases of COVID-19 being linked to returning travellers from Melbourne. Mm. Yeah, it's just the nature of the virus. It doesn't take many people to have it for it to start taking off in a city. So if there's a fair bit of it going around in Melbourne, there's a very good chance that it could spread to other cities despite all of these measures like border closures so yeah to me that speaks to other questions like job keeper and job seeker and uh you know you, you can't just i don't think you can just apply these measures to melbourne or victoria i think while ever there is some COVID 19 in australia while ever it has not been eliminated then any measures that are kind of tackling the economic impact, 
they've got to be continued for the whole country, not just for a little chunk of the country. Yeah, Chloe, do you have a comment you'd like to make? Um, yeah, I guess this is just really showing um, that it's exposing the class struggle, I guess. Um, just people just being demonised, uh, small small groups in the community uh, for for spreading the virus. Um, you know, when it's, you know, it's there was one item in the news about a lavish, I think it was in Queensland actually, but it was like a, a, a lavish um, party of 50 people and half of them contracted the virus. Uh, they are in isolation, but, you know, they're not exactly being imprisoned in their homes. So you can really see uh, how the government discriminates uh, against people um, in terms of race and um, and class. Yeah, I think it's like, yeah, um, when you look at the, the treatment of um, public housing tenants in the Flemington Towers, I think that indicates a kind of class-based response, uh, independent of whether it were... Um, whether a hard lockdown was kind of necessary in that particular public health context, it's quite clear that one um, that the the reasoning for sending in massive amounts of police officers uh, to enforce a kind of hard lockdown, as opposed to getting a, a community mobilisation of health workers, social workers, um, etc., um, is governed is guided by the view that um, we can't trust these people because they're from particular backgrounds. Um, if we if we made them panic, then people would just start leaving the ha- um, their homes and um, spreading the virus. So I think there's, although funny enough, I mean, on Wednesday night, which was the day before um, the lockdown sort of ended, you know, a lot of people, ordinary um, Victorians or Melbournians, um, you know, all went out to have dinner, uh, have a bit of a drink um, with the limited um, numbers that were allowed uh, before the day. I mean, they got an opportunity to sort of, you know, spend a bit of their, you know, freedom, whatever limited their freedom was, um, you know, to to enjoy their lives before the hard lockdown in, in say, the Greater um, in Melbourne was imposed. And public housing tenants don't actually don't seem um, don't seem to afford that um, privilege that was given to um, the majority of Melbourneians in the, in that case. I mean, it strikes me what how is this virus spreading? There's shared laundry facilities, as I understand, in the public housing, and there's shared lifts, and the way that the um, I don't know the way that they're designed is there's only a couple of lifts servicing these whole buildings. And so if you want to socially distance, you're going to be waiting many hours to kind of use the lift in a socially distant way, or you use it in an unsafe way and you, you know, you pile into the lift because you want to get back to your, your unit before, you know, midnight. Um, so to me, that's, that's a problem with the design of the buildings. There, there should be, masks offered and training in how to correctly use the masks. Getting the UE temporary relief on home. Oh, so that if people are using these overcrowded lifts, then they can at least have some level of protection from masks. There needs to be regular cleaning of the masks and regular cleaning of the laundry areas. But I mean, if you're living on the fifth floor and there's people above on the sixth floor that have got COVID, well, unless you're going up there and hanging out, then it's not a problem. So to me, the the key issue is 
are people going from unit to unit and hanging out together. Now, I'm sure that there are people in those units who've got friends or relatives in other units who they would like to go and visit. And so the key question is, do you need a police officer on every floor to stop people visiting each other? Or is it sufficient to talk to people and say, hey, you might get COVID if you go and hang out with people. It's really important that you stay <clears throat> confined to your um, apartment and only go out if you really have to. Like to me, that's the real racist thing about this is there's this underlying insinuation that people in public housing blocks are really stupid and they're not capable of reason and they're not capable of, you know, identifying their own self-interest in not getting covered by not, you know, going and, and hanging out with other people. Like, I just don't, it just doesn't make any sense. You don't need to send cops in. You can just send in translators and people to go and speak you can go door to door. You can go and speak to people and go, look, this is a serious problem. It's really important that you stay in your unit, but it's just, it doesn't make any sense that, it, that the, the underlying insinuation is that anyone living in public housing and there's this racial dimension, you know, these grubby immigrants in public housing, they're really dumb. They don't know how to social distance. Like it's super racist. And what we've seen, I think there was a good article going around is the residents of the public housing themselves did a much better job than the state government in translating all this stuff from English into like nine other different languages and then getting it out to other residents in the public housing. So people could understand what the lockdown was all about. Cause to me, that's, that's a big part of the, issue as well is you've got to translate stuff like this is not rocket science but you, you don't need bloody cops standing on people's door screaming in people's faces in english and roughing them up and you know being violent towards them you just need to tell people you just need to communicate yeah and i think that um one of the other things as well is I think there's a certain logic to why, I mean, considering the nature of the situation, I mean, those whole public housing towers would have turned into a big public health emergency quite quickly. You know, I think the, there's probably, possibly from the government's sort of own limited resources and what it has access to, in a, in a, in a sort of crude logic, it kind of makes sense that they would have called upon police officers uh, because police officers are probably the main sort of group of, they're not workers, but group of people um, that can be mobilised at a short notice for such emergency situations, which actually just says something, I think, actually about our system. Why is it that we don't have any money, appear to not have um, the capacity to, like, just mobilise thousands of community workers or social workers or health workers, like some kind of disaster kind of response team um, in mass who are, you know, trained to deal with these kind of situations. Um, how come there's no such planning um, in terms of that compared to what some other countries um, like Vietnam and Cuba have done? Um, there's no, um, the only sort of resource um, um, that the government seemed to have in its disposal to um, do, deal with an emergency public health situation like this with the towers was just coin on cops um, who have a history of brutalising um, the tenants um, and, the, and through racial discrimination and, and harassment. And then there's also the other, um, the other question, which is, um, I think that, you know, 
there has even if it's even if that was the public health advice that they had received um that you know the best possible thing would have been is to lock all the public housing tenants up in their homes when you consider the nature of the housing um and what you're going to be isolating people into wouldn't it actually make more practical sense to um have a planned approach where you actually evacuated a lot of the public housing tenants into hotels. I'm sure there's plenty of hotels that people could have been transported to, or even at worst, you know, people who are vulnerable or sick could have been evacuated out of the towers and put into hotels, quarantined from um, everyone else. Um, like the fact that the government um, can't even see um, um, big, big response to a big public health emergency I, the risk of a massive outbreak in, in um, very dense public housing towers is to just send in cops, I think is just indicative, I think, of the limitations of the system we live under um, to actually address public health emergencies like this. Top of each other using shared facilities. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, we might just go, um, I'll just play a quick announcement and I want to sort of discuss some of the economic kind of issues that are kind of rising, especially the questions around job keeper and job seeker, because that looks like it's going to be dominating the media uh, for the next um, part of the week, especially with the implications of how the capitalist class is going to respond to, because basically one of the, one of the sort of funny um, things is I think the capitalist class were quite um, keen about getting everything reopened again. Um, and they were thinking that, you know, we've got this virus under control, we can go back to business as usual. So I think that's going to be a big part, of, I think, of a discussion that's going to be in, I think, in the headlines for the next um, few weeks, how they will, are they going to adapt to this situation? All right, so I'll just play a quick announcement. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Okay. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio and we were just discussing the hard lockdown of the public housing states, which is going to be a bit expanded upon when I play a pre-recording of a talk, um, an interview by um, with uh, Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton. And we were also kind of discussing, you know, some of the measures and the problems of the, of the response by the Victorian government. So I kind of wanted to start an, a bit of another discussion, and that is... Um, what is happening around JobKeeper and JobSeeker. So essentially the federal government has had announced these income support programs, uh, you know, to support people during this kind of COVID-19 crisis. And they're kind of due to end in September. Now, what's quite interesting is Scott Morrison has, as of yesterday or on Wednesday, has basically said that, they are going to be looking towards extending the kind of JobKeeper support beyond September and not just for Victorians, they're extending it to be a kind of national kind of program, um, which is quite interesting because basically early on, uh, the federal government was quite clear that, oh, we're going to cut off the income support by September. We won't maintain the increase. But as the, as the COVID-19 crisis is intensified, 
and of course also pressure from the groups uh, from the community and the trade union movement, they are actually uh, feeling the pressure to extend the JobKeeper program beyond September, along with um, JobSeeker, um, the increased rate for JobSeeker. So I think that's kind of interesting. And there's a few things happening there. And that is uh, even bourgeois economists are sort of raising concerns about what's actually going to happen once this income support ends. Because basically, the economy hasn't gone to a point where there's all these jobs available, despite the fact that Scott Morrison's going on about how the government is apparently creating jobs. You know, as a result of the COVID-19 crisis, the hospitality industry has taken a huge hit. Uh, The creative arts industry has taken a big hit. And there's also lots of other kind of industries that have taken a kind of big hit. And of course, a lot of those people who would be in those industries have either been uh, either on JobKeeper, um, the wage subsidy given by the government, or on JobSeeker. And, you know, in the context of maintaining levels of consumption, um, you know, the government is in this weird kind of position where they're going to be pushing to cut, um, to um, withdraw and cut JobKeeper and JobSeeker, but they're actually facing, clearly facing external pressure. And then there's also the fact that a lot of um, businesses have been lobbying the government to extend the JobKeeper um, program beyond September. Um, and then there's also the issue that um, a lot of banks have been playing a role in lobbying the government because a lot of banks are worried that once JobKeeper and JobSeeker ends, people won't be able to pay off or continue paying off their mortgages. So, yeah, we're heading into, I think, a very kind of... Uh, the capitalist system within Australia is sort of in this weird, precarious position, and um, the federal government is going to be have to force to respond <laughs> uh, in whatever way. And of course, whatever way they respond, will probably they'll try and attack the wor- um, workers at the same time. Uh, I mean, already um, I've already heard random mentions that uh, to pay for the COVID nineteen crisis. Um, it's been put on the table by right wing commentators that we should just increase the GST. <laughs> Um, the goods and services tax, which uh, means that um, all, all, all basic goods will be more expensive for all um, individual working class people to um, purchase. Um, and yeah, that's sort of, yeah, that's sort of kind of, yeah, Zane and Chloe, do you sort of have any sort of points you kind of want to make? Well, I, I'm glad that Morrison has received a lot of backlash um, for suggesting that the increase to job seeker, this job seeker rate has become some kind of a barrier um, to Australians seeking employment. You know, it's just the idea that people will only look for work if they are starving is simply not true. And I think it, it I mean, it's just disgraceful that we have a, a prime minister who seeks to, you know, demonize people who are having to rely on government support to survive Um no one wants to stay on job seeker and yeah it is it is a lie that people would rather um not work and collect government support instead he really needs to go back um to school and really study the the structural causes and um the the causes of economic and social exclusion you know um you know people aren't choosing to deliberately stay unemployed due to job, to due to job seeker and just like they aren't choosing to to contract the virus. Um, And there's also the invisibility of unpaid work. That doesn't really get mentioned. 
um, you know, these sorts of comments that vilify people who can't find work, um, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, it really hurts and demoralizes working class people, especially women and mothers who take on, you know, 70% uh, of all unpaid labor, most of which is childcare. And with childcare workers recently cut off from the job keepers, uh, job keepers scheme, um, you know, even more women are affected by this. They're losing their jobs and they have less access to, to childcare, which means more unpaid labor. So I really think that women's rights, uh, migrant worker rights, refugee rights, they're all under attack. Um, and that's been, that's really been exposed um, during this pandemic. Mm. Yeah, spot on. Uh, I think another aspect too that's interesting to me is uh, it's absolutely makes sense that you've got businesses lobbying for the extension of of uh, job keeper and uh, the extended rate of job seeker because they know that workers um, may otherwise struggle to pay their mortgage and in this context these subsidies and just like welfare as a whole should be seen as a subsidy for business. I mean, if you're on Centrelink, okay, you get your payment. It's in your bank account for five minutes and then you spend it on all your bills and your rent and your groceries. And so you're actually subsidizing Coles and Woolies and the power company and your landlord. And the stuff is, it's quickly out of your bank account. It's briefly stocked in there. And the subsidy has actually gone to them. And I think that's a key dynamic here is it's one thing for the government to run deficits and pump this money into the economy to stimulate the economy. And I think that is definitely, it needs to continue. But where does that money accumulate? Where does it stop? When, when does it stop circulating through the economy and just end up sitting in someone's bank account as profit? And that is the problem. And you address that problem by having higher uh, company tax rates and higher taxes on the wealthiest individuals. Um, you don't address that by having a higher GST because you have a higher GST and your stimulus goes into your job keeper or your job seeker. And then someone goes to Coles or Woolies and buys their um, groceries and bang 10% of that goes straight back to the government it's kind of like taking a bunch of the stimulus back straight away in the form of GST from workers and reducing their spending power when the real issue is to stop that money accumulating in the bank accounts of big corporations so uh, to me this is this is a, a, a a part of this that's not being discussed is that if you're having big government stimulus, that can be, it absolutely is an appropriate thing to do at a time like this, but you've got to have progressive tax to, to go along with that. And we saw that here and in other countries after World War II, when governments had taken on huge, they'd run huge deficits to, to spend up on, on World War II. And then coming out of that, there was further stimulus programs, public housing, the New Deal, stuff like that. But these things were coupled with a high um, company tax rate and a high tax rate on people earning over 
180 grand is, is what the tops, top um, income tax bracket is now to stop all of that government stimulus just accumulating in private bank accounts. I mean, I suppose what you mentioned, Zane, is that is kind of the tension um, because there's a certain, certain capitalist interests are not interested in having high company tax rates. Um, <laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> and, and so that's sort of the tension that the government has to um, sort of balance out in the interest of when you're managing a capitalist, uh, managing the capitalist system, um, they essentially have to manage though, uh, balance out those, those interests while also a lot of federal government um, governments are committed to neoliberalism, which basically argues that, you know, essentially that these public services, et cetera, shouldn't exist. It should all be uh, private. Um, although that said, um, neoliberalism is always contradictory in that it has a lot of state resources uh, to defend companies' profit making um, and capital accumulation. Uh, you know, from you know giving a lot of money to the police force, for example, um, and uh, essentially giving a lot of money uh, um, to gov- um, giving give, putting resources into attacking workers' rights, giving uh, attacking workers' rights to organise. So yeah, I guess I wanted to just bring up one quick thing, and that is just some concerning things that I've read about what the federal government is doing with JobKeeper and currently, and also the fact that they, um, so there's been a few things hinted um, that have been reported in the news lately, and that is a number of childcare companies have been deemed not eligible for the JobKeeper program, um, despite the fact that they had already received the JobKeeper money. Um, So the ATO might be trying to push put these the Australian Taxation Office might be putting these companies in a position where they might um, where they may have to pay back the the money that they got already got given for JobKeeper. And then of greater concern is probably a lot of sole traders, a lot of um, sort of small businesses, etc. Have been you know it's been reported that they weren't eligible for JobKeeper, and so i.e. they weren't entitled to the money that they were already given by the government. And I think of another another concern I think as well is um, the government is even trying to put an attempt to crack down on people who withdrew their superannuation early but didn't necessarily have a valid reason. And for listeners' information, uh, to the valid reason for being able to withdraw your super early was if you had an income loss of 20 to 30% since February um, of, of this year. So... The fact, the fact that there might there might have been some people who might have withdrew who didn't necessarily fit that precondition, but of course there's always complicated situations with with why someone withdrew their super anyway. But I think also that the onus should actually be the few problems with this. First off, it's actually people's money. In, um, whatever super people withdraw out of their accounts, it's actually their money. It's not the government's. Um, it's not the government's right to reclaim or claim back, and the second thing is, for most people, if you're withdrawing your super and you don't have a valid reason, you're probably screwing yourself over financially anyway. And I think it should probably be the um, people should be able to wear that cost, and they shouldn't have the government looking over them, saying making it making that um, economic pain that they'll likely face as a result of withdrawing their super early worse. And yet, yeah, I think the, the third thing. If the government was so concerned about their super uh, annuation system 
breaking apart, maybe they shouldn't have um, sort of a policy where you just make it, um, where you just allow people to withdraw their super early. Maybe they should have just give. they could have come up with a smarter idea, probably. Maybe they should have just given $2,000 to every single person unconditionally. Um, that probably would have been a more, a more rational system um, and would have, put people in a position where they wouldn't have withdrawn with their super or made up for not being able to allow people to withdraw from their super because initially it was sort of seen, you know, some people were sort of seen as a bit generous in the government when, you know, in actual fact, it's not really that generous in, so to speak. Hmm. And getting back to what Chloe was saying before, uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that a lot of those people that have pulled out some of their super would be, um, Single mums, uh, women who are, you know, on on low pay, you know, doing unpaid child caring work and or child care workers who were amongst some of the lowest paid um, part of the, the workforce prior to this and who have had their job keeper cut. So, you know, child care workers have their job keeper cut. They were relying on that income. They're not getting enough shifts. And so they dip into their super and then the, the government wants to have a crack at them for that as well. Yeah, exactly. The, the burden of any crisis, you know, whether it's the, the climate emergency or recession, uh, a pandemic, the, the burden is usually, unfortunately, sadly, shouldered by those who are, are most vulnerable, uh, the exploited. Um, but, you know, there also are essential workers, undocumented workers, migrant workers, you know, they're the ones that have been continuing to put themselves at risk during this health crisis. And we shouldn't forget that. It has not been the CEOs and the mining executives who can afford to stay home and watch Netflix. You know, it's, it's these frontline workers who have been working to provide uh, the, the services we need uh, so we can all continue to live the kind of lives we're used to. And how does the government repay, repay them? Uh, you know, by not recognising their value, uh, telling them to go back to their countries, locking them up in towers, surrounding them by police, uh, you know, making them look like like criminals. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's um it's quite. Um, I also think it kind of relates to um when um this whole idea, and in fact, this is where a lot of bodies like Centrelink kind of play a role. A lot of their their role, um, the bureaucratic kind of role that they play within the government is to make sure that people deserve the money um, that they get uh, as if um, people have to prove, um, people have to prove um, to the state or to the system that they deserve to get some money or, or income support, because basically the overwhelmingly ideology is that if you're able to work, you should be a wage slave uh, and that's the uh, and only you then deserve to have a house, uh, food and um, shelter, uh, as if you if you if you um, fulfil those conditions. Hmm. But I mean, again, this this whether it's job keeper or job seeker, whatever these subsidies are, they're in your bank account for a short while, and then they quickly become a subsidy for Coles, Woolies, your power company, your phone company, your internet company, and your landlord. So this idea that you've got to beg and grovel to to be this kind of vessel who has this money in your account briefly before it then goes on to subsidise people who actually kind of 
really gain more of that you know if you're if you're a renter which i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say 99.9 percent of people in centrelink are renters that subsidy that is centrelink so much of that is going to rent which accumulates as equity in the landlord's um account or, or you know you're paying off your landlord's house with Centrelink. So who's the real benefactor for that? It's your landlord. It's not the, the renter. They're the person who's got the enduring subsidy from the government. So this whole idea that, you know, poor people have got to beg and grovel and prove that they're worthy for these subsidies, it just ignores where these subsidies are actually going. Anyway, um, we might just tie up this kind of discussion now just i'll play i guess a quick announcement um and we might move on i guess to the next kind of part of the program good um you're listening to green left radio looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3cr subscription you can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted you can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. listening to Green Left Radio and for the next part of the program I'm going to be playing a recording of a speech by Debbie Kilroy. Debbie Kilroy is a prisoner rights activist and founder and CEO of Sisters Inside um, which campaigns for which is a group that campaigns for the rights of women in prison and this speech was taken from a public forum that was organized by Green Left titled Defund the Police and Abolish the Prisons and took place on June the 28th. Um, so, yeah, I will play Debbie Kilroy's speech right now. Hey, thanks, Lizzie. That was really great. Thanks for not sugarcoating the reality of racism in Australia today um, for, for all First Nations people and for um, and, and, and your own family experience and also for pointing a way forward. Um, you're right. There's mass movement happening. There's people on the streets. Uh, for people over in the West, the next Black Lives Matter being organised by Bulu Justice is midday, Sterling, uh, Sterling Gardens. So make, make sure you're there. Well, the next speaker we're really lucky to uh, invite to the microphone is uh, Debbie Kilroy. Um, I'm sure all of you know that she's been a long-term prison rights campaigner, campaigning for justice reinvestment and to make <coughs> justice real in this country. I'm sure like many of you, you saw Debbie, I think it was on Australian Story. So um, talking about her life experience and her, and her activity. So like many of you, I sort of feel like I, I know Debbie without actually knowing her. But um, I'm sure she's got lots of interesting stuff to start, say at this critical moment. So over to you, Debbie. Thank you. Um, before I speak this afternoon, I want to acknowledge that I'm a settler on unceded land in Mianjin. And I want to acknowledge elders past and present, Turrbal, Jagara and Yarraga people of this area where I've settled. Um, and my actual place of residence is on Nulumpul land that runs down to Minjirabar 
where Kwandamooka people are, otherwise known as Strobrook Island. I want to acknowledge um, elders here today with us um, and what you bring to this conversation is the most important. And I want to thank Lizzie and Mervyn, thanks so much um, for what you have shared so far and so much more that can be shared after this. And you're right, we have to move forward, we have to make changes. Um, I also want to acknowledge all the people around this country and around the world that are languishing in our prison cells and police watch our cells and the so-called refugee detention centre cells and any and the mental health institutions where people are locked up and they have no freedom. They can't, they don't have the freedom to move, to walk out and be out here in the free world like us at the moment. And that they're languishing in the most harshest conditions that we could possibly imagine. And as Lizzie said before, the pandemic of racism is way, way worse and will continue for decades, has continued since the invasion of this country, will continue after my death if we don't actually do something about it. Um, and I think what I find offensive is people who are put up in hotel rooms, um, who are usually white privileged people that have travelled from overseas and come back into this country and get their accommodation paid for them and then equate that to being locked up like someone in prison. It's nothing like being locked up in prison when you're actually in a hotel room out here in the free world. Um, so thanks for inviting me um, to have this important conversation um, with you all this afternoon. Um, I've just got some notes because I, I will probably go down different rabbit holes if I just free speak. Like I'm not great like Lizzie and Mervyn who can just talk. I actually need to focus my mind a bit um, around what we're talking about. So. Um, first, firstly, let me say that abolition of the prison industrial complex is our destination and decarceration is our journey. So to, the abolishment of the prison industrial complex is not something I believe I'm going to see in my life, but right now at this point of time is a historical moment for everyone in the world after the, like what Lizzie described, the horrific death, the knee on the neck, of Mr. Floyd and watched for over eight minutes police killing him and have killed many before that and have killed thousands and thousands of Aboriginal people, First Nations people also here in this country. There is now movement on the street. There is movement about the conversation of um, the ab to abolish the prison industrial complex and also decarceration strategies. And it's really good. And as I said, Decarceration is the journey, abolition the destiny. And some people now around the world are joining that journey with us and some of us have been on that journey for a very long time. And so I want to welcome the newcomers because it's really important that we have these conversations and continue to have the conversation to imagine a world without prisons and police and punishment in the models that we know of now that are actually killing First Nations people, black and brown people. <clears throat> You know, we demand, I demand, and I hope you all demand, that we must defund police and abolish prisons. As like I said, it's now a global movement and that's what the call is, everywhere from every country. We here in Australia must demand the divestment from police and punishment in prisons. This must include every 
other entity that uses carceral mechanisms in our communities. By this, I include corporations and non-government organisations, those organisations that are funded with taxpayers' money and then use carceral mechanisms to actually control people that they are funded to actually support. They must be defunded. That money must be removed. We cannot keep continuing in a world where we use carceral responses and think that we are going to get something different than what we have today, and that is the killings of First Nations people, black and brown people, by police, prisons and other institutions. And as Lizzie said so eloquently before, the removal, the kidnapping of children, Aboriginal children, is a huge issue. You know, up until recently, we as a society have not really questioned whether policing, punishment and prisons should exist. It's only now, since this movement, that we've got some momentum and we've got a new generation of young people who are thinking about the world and wanting a different world and the world that we have lived in within the racial capitalist society. You know, um, prisons have become part of our subconscious landscape in our mind that when we think of some certain sort of behaviour that we don't like, we think of calling cops. If we think about even Lizzie's little son, 10-year-old in a shop, stealing lollies, which he wasn't, but say if he was, the response is call police, lock him up, criminalise him, put him in prison, go through the court system, go through the prison industrial complex system. We haven't been able to think of anything else different because it's become part of our subconscious landscape in our mind that we call cops and engage courts and prisons to respond to any type of behaviour that we want to question. And this must end. We can't establish boards, so-called independent boards, and rely on the same structures. We can't call on abolition for abolition and then ask that a cop gets arrested and be dealt with in the same system that we know doesn't deal justice to anybody. we actually got to come up with other models of public safety and security. It's time. And we know that there's groups in our community now that think of those things and, and use them as strategies. We know that Aboriginal women will not go to the police for help around domestic and family violence because they'll be arrested. We know that black trans women won't call the police to deal with a violent interaction with someone, whether it's interpersonal or with the state, because they will get violated and maybe killed. We know that the same in non-binary communities. We, you know, and these communities have other strategies to deal with the violence in their lives. And we must actually start talking to those communities because they're actually doing it. Women who are in prison today, we don't rely on screws to deal with the issues in our lives. We know that they will violate us even further. So we actually take it in our own hands and deal with the conflict, deal with the violence internally in the prison system. And to say that we need prisons because of certain people that are violent. I don't believe that we put violent people into violent prisons because the violence will continue. We actually need to think of ways to deal with people in a way that's respectful and dignified to end violence, but also if someone is violating someone else, causing harm, how do we address that? And it can't be with police punishment and prisons. We've got to stop thinking within our subconscious landscape about punishment models, and we've got to start thinking outside the bars. Another important, you know, 
I'll go back. Sorry. So my sister in the US, Angela Davis, says it's as if prisons were an inevitable part or fact of life like death and birth. And we must unpack that. We can't rely on prisons to be part of our lives like life and death. They do not give us life. They actually kill us. And we know more so for Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people, black and brown people around the world. So an important question today is about how to prevent the net widening. How do we prevent the further criminalization and imprisonment of First Nations people and other disadvantaged peoples in our community here in Australia and around the world? But I think Australia now, we're having conversations about defunding police and the abolition of prisons, which is great because there has only been a very small number of us that actually talk about this. And it's usually through our international connections. And it is an internationalist issue. It's not just an issue now that we're talking about in this country, but it's great. And we need to keep this conversation going. We can't bolster up the expansion of the prison industrial complex. And I think um, Sam introduced me as someone who supports justice reinvestment. I actually don't support justice reinvestment because I don't see any justice in the first instance. And the reinvestment that's usually made in those type of models are back to white academia, universities or researchers, or the, and the money is not given back to elders, to communities to distribute how they want. Money saved in the justice reinvestment models that we have that are funded by government is removed from the community and spent elsewhere. And if we look at New South Wales, a new 1,700-cell prison run by Serco has just opened, which we've been fighting against for years and years to stop. And it's only now on the agenda because they're opening the door. Um, we must imagine and creatively explore new ideas of justice new models of community safety and security, which I said, we can no, no longer rely on the racial capitalist punishment models, those institutions, those institutions that racial capitalism calls justice, when we know that it is not justice. There is no justice. You know, people call it the criminal justice system. I call it the criminal punishment system. That is the reality. There is no justice. So we've got to take justice back how we want to define it and develop those models ourselves. We must continue to expose racial capitalism and its punishment institutions. And this conversation today is doing that. Lizzie Mervyn has um, told us horrendous stories that have happened to their loved ones, family members and people in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, you know, the most horrific experiences, which, as a white woman, I'm absolutely ashamed to be in this country where we are still treating Aboriginal people, people that have lived here for 60,000 years of survival and how we as white settlers, as white supremacists have dismantled culture, removed land. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a white person asking for land. I'm asking for land rights, not native title, because that's bastardized again by the white legal punishment model. We must declare now a moratorium on building any more prison cells in whatever form that is. No more, no more. Not even if the reformists are saying, well, the children are cramped together or the prison is overcrowded. Well, release them. 
And what we've actually seen during this whole coronavirus pandemic here, um, I've seen here in Queensland, that, for example, the watch house, right? Prison, we're getting the women out, the numbers are coming down. More lawyers are getting to their feet acting because they haven't got anything else to do, so they're actually acting in the best interests of women and girls and men. Um, I can't talk more so about men because, you know, we walk alongside the women and the girls. But what we're seeing is the numbers come down. During coronavirus, because the watch houses didn't want people coming into the watch houses under arrest in case they had the virus, they would give them, not arrest them, tell them to go away, or give them a notice to appear, which here is a bit of paper that says you've got to appear in court on this date. So they had the watch houses cleaned out. It's only now that we're seeing the restrictions move to allow more freedom that watch houses have become active again. And so before, um, Sisters Inside staff that were going into the biggest watch house in this state um, were with about 30 women or more were held and processed in a week where it became to four or five in a week. So we knew that the cops can actually criminalise and do things differently. <clears throat> but now, because the watch house is open again, we're actually seeing the numbers go up. So the time has come to actually push back on cops. You know, we must, my sister from over in Canada, Pam Palmata, you know, she said beautifully about the time has come as an Indigenous activist there in Canada. And I want to take her words because they're actually so fundamentally honest here. What we can do is we must stop our taxpayers' dollars, yours and mine, to continue the oppression of First Nations people. The time has come to defund the police, take the resources from them. The time has come to move funding from those organisations, whether they're non-government organisations or corporations or companies, because we see a lot of NGOs now becoming companies. That funding must be removed from them if they use carceral mechanisms to control the people that they are funded to support. So whether it's in housing, you know, if there's an issue in housing, for example, and they actually want someone to move out, they don't talk to the person to actually work out what the issues are. They call the goddamn cops and they're criminalised. The same. They've taken the baby from mum. Mum's upset. They call the cops to come with the so-called social workers to actually kidnap that black baby and for it to never be returned home to its mother, its family and its community. So we see the ongoing genocide of First Nations people in this country. And this is what Pam calls on for Canadian Aboriginal people there. And I believe that it, this is what we must call here, that we've got to stop using our taxpayers' money to fund the oppression of the First Nations people in this country. We must decarcerate, you know, um, and we must have a plan, a national plan around decarceration and how we're going to do it together. We must, we need to excarcerate to stop criminalising people. We've got to look at these laws and repeal laws to stop actually criminalising people. And I just want to um, finish because, you know, time's running out and, you know, Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, who's an activist, academic, prison abolitionist in the US, love Ruthie, my sister, and she just says, Three words twice, and I want to say them today because I really believe this absolutely. Life is precious, 
Life is precious. Okay, listeners, you are just listening to a recording of a speech by Debbie Kilroy from Sisters Inside um, that was taken from a public forum um, organised on June 28th, titled Defund the Police and Abolish Prisons, uh, Prison System. So hope, um, hope listeners enjoyed that. Now, the next um, thing I'm going to be playing is I'm going to be playing a recording of a speech or talk um, by Sue Bolton and basically giving her sort of analysis as um, a member of Social Science and a Moreland City Councillor about the Victorian government's draconian hard lockdown of public housing estates, which has dominated the media in the past week, and a bit, yeah, a bit of a political analysis on the whole situation. Well, I think most people in Melbourne, including most people in the, in the public housing estates and most migrant communities, are totally aware of how dangerous COVID-19 virus is. Most people in migrant communities, especially from who come originally from countries where there's a high level of COVID-19, have had their families overseas ravaged by the virus and some have lost family members. So there's there's not a lack of awareness. Now, there may be parts of the community in every Anglo, non-Anglo, migrant, non-migrant um, communities where, you know, some of the conspiracy theories from the US have, you know, penetrated into communities via Facebook and so forth. Um, that will be a phenomenon in every community, but it's only a tiny, tiny number of people who might think the virus is some sort of conspiracy. The vast majority of people are concerned about the virus. But the way in which this lockdown happened in of the public housing estates in Melbourne of nine public housing towers and, and walk-ups in Melbourne, in Flemington and North Melbourne, was totally outrageous and I think totally counterproductive to a health response. My belief is that public health uh, measures, which in, need to involve the whole of society, work best when it's when there's a partnership between government and, and society, when there's a collective response, when you involve community leaders where people feel that they're part of combating the virus. This was something else again. No one else in Melbourne has experienced this and certainly not the skiers from the rich suburbs who came back from the Aspen ski fields uh, after attending a, um, an event in the Aspen Ski Resort organised by a prominent Liberal Party member um, who then spread the virus around all of the um, rich suburbs in Melbourne. So there's no lockdown, not even a partial lockdown for those people, um, let alone this sort of lockdown for the public housing tenants. I think the public housing tenants are being scapegoated for stuff-ups during the, with the hotel quarantine program where um, the government contracted out to security guard companies. I imagine they did it, had to do it fairly rapidly. They said it w within 24 hours. And I know there are a lot of fast decisions being made in the context of how fast the virus is spreading, but they set up the hotel quarantine in 24 hours, but then those con companies they contracted to, subcontracted to other companies. And it sounds like there was no real quality control. So there have been rumours for a long time about the problems in the hotel um, quarantine, but you know, the 
it's gone on and on and on and has resulted in two big clusters uh, connected to two particular hotels. Um, so I think the public housing tenants are being scapegoated for, for that. And so, you know, the virus spread so fast, it's spread into working class areas, probably from that source, but also other sources as well. And in the working class areas, including the public housing estates, there are high numbers of essential workers who work in warehouses, work in transport, work in um, the food, work for the food giants, i.e. Coles and Woolworths or Aldi, um, work in at the airports, um, you know, work in hospitals and aged care homes and also security guards. So there are a lot of people who work in jobs where you um, you can't work from home and they also work in a lot of jobs which are precarious and part-time. So, you know, that means um, pe these uh, people have been in a vulnerable situation already, not like the white-collar workers who might be able to sit at home and, and do their work at home. So that makes them vulnerable. And so whether it's from the security guards or, or cedar meets or one of the other um, flashpoints, um, the, this virus has got into working class areas after going through a period where there are very few cases within, within Victoria. So now there is a crisis and the government's panicking. I can understand them panicking and the health officials panicking. But this hard lockdown is going to be counterproductive. So basically the police arrived at the housing estates at 4pm as the Premier was making the announcement. They arrived with no interpreters, no advance warning so that people could stock up on supplies to tide them over, no, no health workers, no food packages, no nothing. So there was just this hundreds of police arriving at the estates and sealing off all of the entry and exit points. Some of the ha housing tenants who arrived downstairs um, just going about their ordinary business to work or to get uh, food or whatever thought there'd been a bomb scare or a murder or something on the estate. Um, they had no idea what was happening. And so people's lives were just shut down with no preparation or anything. I don't believe they would have done this in any of the affluent suburbs of Melbourne if this same out-of-control virus was there. They would not have done this with this um, lack of um, lack of notification, lack of preparation. And this has caused a really disastrous situation for the public housing tenants. So you have to picture these public housing towers um, a lot of them would only be two-bedroom uh, units, although there might be some that might be three-bedroom. Um, they have no balconies. So it's not like they can go on the balcony to get a bit of fresh air. The upper levels are all sealed windows um, in order to stop anyone trying to commit suicide and jumping out. So it means there's no access to fresh air. There might be some people who... Um, might have up to five kids, including little kids, including kids who've got special needs um, in this, um, in these flats, in, in a two-bedroom flat, who they're not allowed 
to take outside to walk around and the grass surrounding the housing estate because there's quite a big expanse of grass and green area surrounding the housing estates. So they could easily go and exercise without coming in contact with other people. Um, and people, when eventually some food arrived, um, it was food that wasn't culturally appropriate. Um, you know, there was tins of tomatoes and pasta and a lot of, like, for example, African families probably, especially the more traditional African families, probably wouldn't be cooking with lots of canned food and that kind of thing. Um, so there are many, we heard, we've heard stories about pork being delivered to Muslim families. Um, yesterday, the food bank arrived and provided 1,600 care packages, but there's 3,000 people on the estates, not 1,600. I believe Royal Melbourne held Royal Melbourne Hospital nurses only arrived today on the estate. So that's two days after the hard lockdown. There are people who've got aggressive cancers who are meant to have chemotherapy scheduled during this lockdown. They're, I believe they've been told that they have to postpone that. These are people with aggressive cancers. There are people who work full-time or part-time or maybe in, um, you know, jobs, precarious jobs, who will probably lose those jobs as a result of this lockdown uh, because there's been no promise by the government that they will take action against any boss that tries to sack a worker who's um, tied up in this lockdown. There, there are just, I mean, people are sort of looking out the windows at people, other people in Flemington taking their dogs for walks or babies in prams or walking around in total freedom while they're locked down. Um, they go to the same schools and shops as other, other members of the public. Um, it, it, there's a total double standard for the postcode. So say, for instance, the postcode that covers the Flemington public housing estate um, so that postcode has been declared a hotspot suburb, but that is, um, but that not everyone in that postcode was treated equally. So other residents in Flemington who don't live in the high rise were given until midnight to get supplies. And it's also true. A lot of those people also packed their cars and left that hotspot postcode code to live with family members outside the postcode. Um, but they were also allowed to stock up on medication or whatever. And those residents in Flemington outside the public housing estate are allowed to go outside for four reasons, for work or education, shop for um, supplies, um, medical care or compassionate care, and for exercise. And I don't see why the public housing tenants can't be on the same level of lockdown as the people in the the community that they exist within in Flemington because they are all part of the same community. Um, I also think the police need to be replaced with healthcare workers. Um, and some of the demands of the tenants, so some of the, I'll just read out some of the demands of the tenants. That the tenants are demanding that they're not stopped from leaving their homes for the four reasons, work or education, exercise, medical care or caregiving or shopping for supplies. 
they're demanding the removal of all police officers from the buildings and a maximum two police officers present in their community. They, they're demanding that rent beginning from the 5th of July be waived until further notice and any residents who have automated payments be refunded immediately. They're demanding a testing station without a police presence within walking distance of all lockdown buildings. They're demanding transparency and immediate transfer of funds to the residents raised by other entities such as Victorian Trades Hall and other entities that are doing fundraising. So I think that it, those demands are totally fair enough, but there also are probably other demands that could be added in terms of, um, you know, the rights of people with disability in the towers to be able to have their carers come in. Some people living in the care, in the towers have disabilities where they can't eat without the assistance of carers. There are also people who are addicted, have substance um, abuse issues, and they will be going through withdrawal without any medical help. Now, the government has promised that they will be providing this help, but you know, this is 3,000 residents. It's taken them this long to get the Royal Melbourne Health care workers into the um, into the tower blocks. So how much longer for all of the um, services to arrive? There were scenes of um, people arriving after receiving a desperate call for nappies. Um, someone, the friend of the person who made the desperate call, arrived at the estate. They could see their friend on the other side of the locked glass door. The police said, no, you're not allowed to come in to give them the package. Um, so the friend asked if the police would hand over the package. The police rudely said, we're not a delivery service um, and refused to deliver to the person who only had two nappies left and was desperate about, um, you know, being able to have enough nappies um you know, um, supplied. So, you know, these are the desperate situations and I don't believe any other resident in Melbourne who doesn't live in these housing estates wouldn't find this absolutely appalling and inhumane and, and discriminatory and stigmatising. And I think for people who are saying the way in which this is implemented is fine, I think, are not experiencing this and are not thinking about the implications if this happened to them. And it's easy for someone with a leafy garden um, who's um, got access to, you know, getting supplies, even if they're not leaving home or is allowed out to go for a walk. It's easy for someone like that to say, yes, this hard lockdown is necessary. But the latest booklet, the booklet, which has been delivered only after 18 hours of hard lockdown and no communication to residents, describes this as a detention directive. Now, if you think about the hotel quarantine, that was described as quarantine. For these public housing tenants, it's being described as a detention directive. So it's not being described as a health response, it's being described in... Um, punitive policing terms. Um, so people do feel like they're being treated as criminals and as prisoners. And it's not their fault that the virus got out into the community. And these communities understand the seriousness of the virus, but they shouldn't be bearing such a massive cost 
And I think the way this is done is is going to sow suspicion about some of the health measures and may mean that um, may set the public health response back rather than setting it forward. So what could be done better or what should be done now to sort of improve the situation? Well, I think the government should implement the public housing tenants' demands about being allowed out for the four reasons that the rest of us in hotspot suburbs are allowed out for and the removal of the vast bulk of the police officers from the um, from the towers, um, the waiving of uh, rent. Now, it looks like the government has... Uh, has indicated that it will waive rent for two weeks. Um, so it looks as if the tenants have won that demand. Um, they're demanding a testing station without a police presence within walking distance of the lockdown buildings. So that should happen. Um, there need, there need to be rapidly, uh, an involvement of the community leaders within each of the tower blocks and within each of the language groups. Um, the, a meeting of these people needs to be convened to urgently, if it hasn't happened already, um, to, um, to communicate with residents and make sure that people are supplied with everything they need, including emergency medication supplies, which people are not able to go out and get. And, uh, there possibly also need to be other um, measures which could be taken place, such as um, if someone in um, a flat is diagnosed with COVID-19 and the other people living in the flat with them uh, want to be put into quarantine somewhere else, so that they can, um, so that they can, um, you know, not catch not catch COVID-19. Um, the government should be finding more um, public housing to put uh, put people in. There needs to be a lot more in terms of sanitary measures within um, within the public housing estate to um, clean the lifts frequently. Because at the moment, in the rest of the Melbourne, there are teams of people going around um, wiping down lamp posts, including lamp posts that no one would ever lean against that aren't touched very often. Um, so they've got people wandering around cleaning things down, both things that are touched frequently by lots of people and things that are rarely, if ever, touched by anybody. Um, and like there does need to be frequent cleaning. I think a lot of public housing tenants have been calling for more information in the a wide range of languages, not just the main language groups, but all of the different language groups um, that are represented in the in these um, residences, and much better cleaning regime. But also, the government should probably be um, setting up an emergency temporary laundries, um, like more emergency temporary laundries, because laundries are communal. And what is the government allowing people to wash their clothes? Or are they meant to go without being able to wash their clothes for um, a fortnight? And then also, I, I imagine some residences, um, some residents probably also have concerns about concerns about the air conditioning system in in the towers as well. Like, is COVID nineteen spread through the air conditioning system? I don't know. But there is a paper which has come out signed by a whole lot of scientists saying that there appears to be new uh, research p 
pointing to it maybe being um, transmitted through air conditioning systems. I don't know. I'm no health expert, so I can't comment on that. But um, I think the government needs to be, um, you know, making sure they're, you know, doing adequate cleaning and so forth of the um, air conditioning systems. The, co- the government needs to go all out to provide people with everything they need and also I think they need to trust public housing tenants in the same way that they're trusting people living around them um, who may have the virus as well, um, people living in other parts of Flemington, in private residences. And I think I think the fact that the government is trusting other people but not trusting the public housing tenants to just limit their movements to these four reasons, I think is is really appalling. And, you know, I don't want to see the spread of this virus any more than anyone else wants to see it spread. But I think, I just think this demonising of people is not going to take the public health response any further forward. It will set it back. One thing we have to remember, and this is why the public housing tenants are asking for the removal of all police officers from the buildings and a maximum of two police officers present in their community. And this is because the police have a terrible reputation for their harassment of black youth, especially male black youth. So, you know, the police officers in this this particular command um, covering this area routinely stop any young black male walking along the footpath or especially a group of young black males. Might be brothers, might be friends. Um, other young men are not subject to this level of harassment. Sometimes the harassment stop, steps up to the point of view of physical harassment, physical pushing around or even worse, bashing up. This, the rate at which the police were harassing the local community led the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre to take a charge, a case against police of racial profiling. That case took a lot of years, but it, the police were found guilty of racial profiling. And then in 2017, when there was a nearby protest organised by people in the left and anti-racist movement against a right-wing racist figure called Milo Yiannopoulos, which attracted some of the far-right and nasty kind of violent characters, um, which, you know, he'd hired a hall close to um, close to the uh, uh, Racecourse Road apartment and public housing complex. And the far-right initiated a fight and started verbally abusing the public housing tenants who didn't even know about the protests. They just came down to watch and see what was happening. And then they were abused by um, the far right. And the police response to that, even though it was started by the far right, and I think they might have even arrested or detained for a short while one of the far right characters, but the police basically... Um, went on a reign of terror against the public housing tenants on that night for hours and hours, chasing young black men through 
the public housing complex in using tear gas on children, children as young as six, who just happened to come down with their parents to see what it was all about. And obviously a lot of the public housing tenants did relate to the anti-racism message of the anti-racism protesters. And there are quite a number of, um, uh, of people of colour amongst the public housing tenants and, and some Muslims amongst the public housing tenants. And that's what led to the, their very physical presence led to the far right attacking them really aggressively verbally. And the police took the side of the far right and they attacked the public housing tenants until late at night. Um, and some of the older um, migrant residents were trying to hose things down and the police were not willing to talk to those people and they roughed a lot of people up and some people were charged but this was um, deliberate victimization in people's place of residence by the police and so you know people have memory of that on this estate and so you know the police the way the police have handled things has been terrible as well and hearing a tweet from uh, one of the housing residents in the Flemington estate late last night where the way the police communicated with them to tell them that the lockdown, the hard lockdown was extended from five days to 14 days was the door being kicked on, not kicked down, but kicked and then an announcement through the door saying the lockdown's been extended till the 14th of July, uh, sorry, to, and for 14 days. So like that, you know, like, no wonder people want the police removed from the estates. These are not people who've got any kind of cultural sensitivity or sensitivity towards people who are going through struggles in life. Um, so, you know, I can understand the residents wanting the police removed, and I think the police should be removed and replaced with health care workers. Listeners, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we were just listening to a recording of Sue Bolton speaking about the draconian lockdown of public housing tenants in Flemington. And I think we will go, um, I'll play, uh, following this, I'll just play a quick announcement and we'll move on to the closing of our program and the activist calendar. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Good morning, listeners. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio, um, and it's about time um, to do the activist calendar. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be, there isn't really much in terms of the activist calendar. Uh, I'm not sure if um, the rest of the left has really adapted to the new lockdown being imposed yet, um, because right now in uh, across Australia, 
um, there's actually protests starting to happen um, around the around the country, but it's all but except for Victoria because we're um, Mel- um, Melbourne because we've been um, we've been imposed with this sort of hard lockdown. Now, the first event I kind of want to announce is there's going to be a public forum um, organised by Social Alliance um, titled. COVID-19 response, healthcare and justice, not racism, uh, basically um, featuring a panel of speakers, uh, including a, a fellow free CR presenter, um, Hope, um, and Sue Bolton, speakers from the Faulkner Muslim community and the U- union movement. Um, so basically, yeah, discussing the type of collective response that we need um, to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and that's going to be on Saturday, July 11th, 10.30 a.m., um, and the Zoom link is um, uh, your Zoom link ID is eight three seven four two nine seven seven two two two. But yeah, we'll post the event um, up on our Facebook page um, so people can get get a bit of idea. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it in terms of the episode. Um I'll give Jane want to give a plug to something. Yeah, so there's this new doco. It's on uh, ABC iView. And it's called In My Blood It Runs. And it's set mainly in Alice Springs, but also in uh, Borolula in the Northern Territory. And it's the story of this little 10, 11-year-old kid, Duan, and his uh, struggles at school. And it's just a bit of a snapshot or insight into what life is like for uh, Aboriginal families and Aboriginal kids in the Northern Territory. And it's really well done. It's really fascinating. And it kind of looks at this interlinked sort of interwoven thing of like uh, youth imprisonment, the school system, the welfare system, and Aboriginal people trying to hang on to culture and language. And I was part of a bus trip to the Northern Territory 10 years ago to protest against the Northern Territory intervention. And a really good part of this doco is that it looks at one of the intervention measures, which was stopping schools in the Northern Territory from teaching kids in their own language, which is really genocidal, basically, because it it has the effect of crushing and stomping out people's, uh, you know, own first mother tongue. But it's... The, the one of the really standout things for me in this doco is that this young kid, when he's at school and he's learning about flora and fauna in his own country and how it all works in his own language, he's engaged with the education system. He has fun. He learns. But because of these disgraceful government policies, they're only allowed to teach the kids in their own language for half an hour a day. And then they go back to learning about bloody Captain Cook and blah, blah, blah in English. And lo and behold, the kid's not very engaged with that. He's more interested in, you know, the stuff that's authentic and interesting to him is when he's hearing about his own country in his own language. And so this kid has trouble with the school system and he's he's disengaged. And this dynamic looking at, for me, one of the big take-home messages of this thing was if that could if that kid was able to learn and and if other kids like him were able to learn in their own language about their own culture for more of the day, for four hours of their school day, instead of half an hour, that would, 
they would be so much more engaged and they'd be so much more healthy actually they'd be learning really useful stuff about the land that they're on uh so yeah can't recommend it highly enough in my blood it runs yeah thanks for that saying okay um I think we'll um, that we'll we'll make the um, we'll go towards um, we'll end the program I guess now. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, yeah, stay tuned for next week, um, and have a great day. <laughs>